Bibles with me to the book of Galatians chapter 1. I think we're all up here. Okay. Galatians chapter 1. I'd like to echo what Mike just said and thank him as well for inviting me today. Uh, Mike has been, uh, uh, has had a relationship with our school for a long time. He said he was, a, uh, he said in the earlier services, he was a trustee of our school at one point uh, on our board. And then second, he's been an adjunct professor for us and a friend along the way. I preached a chapel message uh, not long ago at our school, one of the best we've ever had, quite honestly, it was a tremendous time for us. So, Mike, thank you. Thank you for your support of our school along the way. And thanks for your church's support, as he mentioned, uh, for your gifts through something called the Cooperative Program, which is how you budget for and send money on to support schools like us. Uh, we're grateful for that. And we, we really thank you for it and appreciate it. Uh, I've lived in the Bay Area, as Mike said, for a number of years, and then, then we moved to Seminary South a few years ago. But we also built a new secondary campus in the Bay Area, uh, and that is in Fremont, so if we can help you with anything related to the seminary, just check with me after the service. Right? I want to ask you a question. It's not a trick question. There's no gimmicks here. I want you to answer the question, all right? Suppose you went home from church today, and you found out that your next-door neighbor was building a fence between your properties, except he was building it about three feet from your house. Uh, would that be a problem for you? Yes. Not for very many of you. Okay, well, uh, let's try that again. Would that be a problem for you? Yes. Uh, so you get that worked out, and you decide to go to the drugstore tonight and get a prescription pill. And so you go there, you get your prescription pill, and you look on the bottle, and there's no dosage listed. And so you go back up to the pharmacist and say, how many of these pills should I take? And she says, don't worry about it. Just take whatever you want. Let me five. <laughs> Would that be a problem for you? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, so you make it through the conflict with the neighbor and you get through the deal with the pharmacist and then tomorrow morning you go to work and it's payday. <laughs> and so you open up the pay stub to see what they deposited in your account and you notice that it's more than $100 short. Would that be a problem for you? Yes. yes. You know, if I went downtown and assembled the same size crowd of people that were not Christians and weren't going to anybody's church and I asked them those same three questions, I think I'd get the same three answers. Because when it comes to our property and our prescriptions and our paychecks, we want accuracy and precision. So then I ask you this question. Why is it, why is it when it comes to having a relationship with God we feel uncomfortable when we use the same kind of precise language. And in fact, we want that kind of an area to be a little more gray than that defined. But Jesus did not leave any gray area. He was just as precise about how to have a relationship with God as we want people to be about these things I've mentioned in these illustrations. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus was precise. There's really not any difficulty in understanding what he said. He said it very plainly, very specifically, very precisely. No one comes to the Father except through me. But very early on in the church, there came to be difficulty with that very claim. 
There was confusion about the gospel. In fact, some were saying there were even other gospels. But Paul, writing to a group of people we call the Galatians, said, there is no other gospel. And I want to read what he wrote and explain it to you in a way that I think will make will have application to you this morning. Paul starts in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by men, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, a curse be on him. For, not, for am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This past, in this passage of Scripture, Paul begins by saying that the gospel is clearly communicated. And he does that by summarizing the gospel in verses 4 and 5. Join me there again. He writes in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, in verses 4 and 5, four phrases that summarize or explain the gospel. He said, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to Him be the glory forever and ever. In these four phrases, the gospel is summarized and Paul says, clearly communicated. Let's walk through the four phrases together. He says, first of all, Jesus gave Himself for our sins. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus speaking said this, I gave my life willingly, no one took it from me. Jesus came and offered himself as a willing, voluntary sacrifice for our sins. We sometimes use the word atonement to describe this process, meaning that Jesus came. Jesus came and gave himself as a willing, voluntary, substitutionary sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, or a person who made atonement for our sins. No one took his life from him. He willingly and voluntarily laid it down. That's what it says in the first phrase. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. But the second phrase is a little more difficult. It says, to rescue us from this present evil age. And you're thinking, well, I wish he would. <laughs> I'm still stuck in this present evil age. But what does that mean then, that Jesus rescued us from this present evil age, when we can obviously look around and see that we're all still here? Well, let me morph into a seminary president for a minute and talk to you about the Greek language that the Bible, the New Testament, was written in at the beginning. In the New Testament Greek language, there are these little words called prepositions, and we have them in English as well. In fact, that word from is a translation of a preposition, and it is a preposition. But the English language is a little flat when it comes to the full meaning of these, 
But in the Greek language, the nuances and the context and the way these prepositions are used are quite beautiful and really quite meaningful. So let me see as your eyes glaze over if I can explain it to you a little more clearly, okay? When the Bible says he gave himself to rescue us from this present evil age, the explanation for us being in the midst of this present evil age and still being rescued from it all goes back to that preposition. The word from can mean rescued out of, from this present evil age, or it can be rescued in the midst of or from the effects of this present evil age. So that if you say you've been rescued from, it can mean out of, or it can mean in the midst of, but from the effects of. You're still glazed over. All right, let me see if I can give it one more time. It's a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Suppose you went down to San Francisco Bay and went on a bay cruise. You went out on the boat, the storm came up, and the boat capsized. But just before it capsized, somebody hit the emergency transponders, and a helicopter was activated to come and rescue you. It's hovering over you, and it lowers a basket. You climb in the basket, and you're raised up, and the helicopter flies you to safety. You've just been rescued from the storm, correct? And you've been rescued out of the storm. Now let's do the same story. Same beautiful Sunday afternoon, same trip, same storm, same capsized boat, same emergency signal, and the helicopter comes for you, but this time, instead of a basket coming down, they drop out a raft, and four Navy SEAL divers jump in the river or jump in the bay with you. They hoist you into the raft, they all climb in, and they start rowing you to shore. Now, because of your strength and expertise, you now know you've been saved, but you've not been saved out of the storm. You've been saved, what? In the midst of the storm. You've not been delivered from the storm. You've been delivered from the effects of the storm. Now you're starting to see the difference. Yeah. You're getting some Greek language instruction right here, aren't you? The Bible says this. Jesus Christ came and offered himself as a willing, voluntary, substitutionary sacrifice for your sin, that he might make atonement for you with God. And in doing that, he made it possible for you to be rescued from, not out of, but in the midst of this present evil age, meaning that he has given you every resource necessary to live out the gospel in the life that you now have to live. And then it gets even better. He goes on to say, and this is according to the will of our God and Father, meaning that this has always been God's plan. Here's God's plan summarized. Before there was anything, there was God. And He spoke, and the universe came into existence. And then God made a man, and God made a woman, and now again He wanted to produce a people for His own possession. But you know what happened? Sin entered the world. God's plan was marred. Something had to be done. And so Jesus stepped out of eternity and into human history, lived a perfect life, died a sinless death, was raised from the dead three days later. So it was possible then by that means for us to have a relationship with God, which now God is in the process of assembling a people for himself for his eternal companionship. That has always been according to the will of our God and Father. And then, on top of that, the last phrase, to Him be the glory forever and ever. 
That means as you read the end of the story in the book of Revelation, that there's going to come a time when a new heaven and a new earth will be formed and everything else will be destroyed and all that will be left will be God and His people. Those of us as assembled from all the nations of the earth for all time will be with Him forever. And you can read those examples of those worship services in the book of Revelation which show that the praise of God just goes on forever and ever and ever. Now look in the Bible with me. When all this was read and spoken the first time, at the end of it, they even wrote it in the Bible. Amen. Amen, Amen means truly, verily, so let it be. And it's a word that we commonly use in church that means I'm with you. I agree with that. I'm for that. I like that. Tracking with me so far? All right, let's see what we do. Here's what these verses say. Jesus Christ gave himself willingly and voluntarily as a substitute for your sin, making atonement for you with God, meaning it's possible for your sin to now be forgiven. And when he did that, he gave you every spiritual resource necessary that you can live in the midst of this present age, but without the impact of it in your life in a negative way. And he did all that because it's always been God's plan to do this, to bring about a people for himself, for his eternal companionship. And when they're all together forever, it's going to resound to God's glory forever and ever. All you got. <laughs> I mean, in light of hearing this magnificent information, this magnificent message, this magnificent gospel, that's all you got? Maybe in God. Fast forward version, let's try one more time. Jesus Christ gave himself as a willing, voluntary sacrifice for your sin to make atonement that you might have a relationship with God and the forgiveness of your sin. In the context of doing that, he delivered you from the impact of this present evil age and saved you, rescued you from the effects of this present evil age. That has always been God's plan. And when God culminates his plan, it's going to resound in his glory forever and ever. Scholars debate this. Some date it a little later, but mid-50s is, I think, about the best dating of the book. Many believe this was Paul's first written letter to any of the churches, which later became that were included in the New Testament. But let's just assume for a moment that he wrote this in the mid-50s. Why is that significant? Because Jesus was resurrected in the early 30s. This is only 20 years after the resurrection. That means that people who had seen Jesus while he was on the earth, he had, had 
who had heard Jesus speak after his resurrection. And if they hadn't done it personally, they had received the gospel themselves from the eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus and experienced the resurrection. This is 20 years after the resurrection, an eye blink of time. It feels like I've been president of Gateway Seminary for about 15 minutes. This is my 15th year. Time flies by, doesn't it? 20 years can go by in an eye just 20 years after the resurrection, Paul is writing to these early Christians and saying, I'm surprised that you're so quickly already turning away from the truth of the gospel. And my friends, if it was a problem that early in our movement, it is still a problem today. Amen. So after showing us how the gospel is clearly communicated, he then warns us about possible sources of compromise for the gospel. Continuing with me in verse 7. He says, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you. Some who are troubling you. Who are these people? Well, I call them anonymous experts. You know, the person who has all the answers but no documentation to support their claims. Some who are troubling you. This takes many different expressions. It's the person at work who sits across the lunch table from you and says something like this. Well, I don't know why you go to church because everybody knows the Bible is full of errors. You say, well, I don't know that the Bible is full of errors. Why do you believe that? And they say, well, I heard a preacher say one time. I read it on the internet. I heard it on a podcast. Everybody knows the Bible is full of errors. Or they'll say something like this. You know, I appreciate the fact that you're a Christian, but you know, all religions are about the same. And you say, well, no, no, they're not. Oh, yes, they are. All religions are about the same. And you say, why do you believe that? Well, everybody knows that. All thinking people realize that all religions are the same. Do you have these conversations? Where people just claim authority about information that they got from somewhere or from someone? It can even be a little more formal than that. Uh, my wife and I were recently watching the History Channel because we are wild and crazy at the president's house. Let me tell you, okay? In drive control over there, they're watching that History Channel. I was watching a mockumentary. I specifically dialed it in because it was going to be about the, historicity, the historical nature of Jesus, his, what's called the historicity of Jesus. I knew it would likely uh, not support the claims that Jesus made about himself, but I wanted to see how they went after it. So I turned this on, and sure enough, right away, someone comes on my screen with a tie and glasses and says, well, everyone knows that the Bible, the, 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 uh, the, you know, he said, many theologians question, that's how I started, many theologians question the legitimacy of the biblical record of Jesus. I, I yelled back at the TV, name one! Where did you get that? Why do you think that? A few minutes later, another person comes on his historian. He said, lots of historians question the historicity of the Gospels. And I said, name one. Give me an example. What are you talking about? And my wife says, uh, Jeff, <laughs> you, you know they can't hear you. you <laughs> now this is a little aside to help all of you women here that need to understand your men better. Men yell at things that don't listen to them. This is one thing we do. This is something that we do. I yell at the TV, and I know they do not hear me. 
But I yell at the news, I yell at History Channel, I yell at football players, I yell at the TV. There's a lot of men going, yeah, I'm not really going I also yell on freeways. I yell at people in the car. I know they can't hear me, but I yell at anyway. I yell, I, I, I used to yell at my children, they didn't listen either. So it was like, it's a thing men do. We just yell at them and they don't listen, we get that. But doesn't it trouble you that people can be distracted from the truth of the gospel by casual conversations, by people who claim that information that's not substantiated, that isn't documented, and then they can even do that in public media where claims are made, but you just marvel that anyone can actually believe what they're hearing, but yet they do. Some, the Bible says, some are troubling you. Now that's easy preaching. This next part, not so much. Look what happens next. But there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if even, but even if we should preach to you a gospel contrary, who's we? Well, we in this context is prominent Christian speakers and leaders. Paul, writing this, said we. If people like me, he said, prominent Christian leaders and speakers. Even if we teach you a false gospel, you have to learn to discern and reject what we have to say. Now, in American culture, we get this mixed up because we often equate popularity with accuracy. Popularity with influence. They are not necessarily the same. Now, let me hasten to add, I'm grateful when God gives popularity to someone who is accurate in what they're saying about the gospel. I'm grateful for that. So popularity does not always diminish a person's uh, stature, but it doesn't automatically validate it either. So you say, well, if I can't trust people who are popular because everyone else is following it as a validation of what they're teaching, how can I understand if what someone is saying to me really is of the true gospel? It's very simple. Read your Bible for yourself. Pay attention to what the Bible has to say for yourself. The Bible is a mysterious and wonderful book. A person can have multiple PhDs and devote an entire lifetime to understanding it and not fully mind the depth of all it teaches. But a third grade child can read it and understand enough about it to become a Christian. That's how wonderful the Bible is. So while it is important to have people in a school like ours that delve into the Bible and give their whole life to its study, that doesn't mean that you can't read it for yourself and discover if what's being taught lines up with what you can read. It's just that simple. Look, when someone, your pastor, me, or anyone, stands up and teaches you something new, and you say, I've never heard that before, or I've never thought that before, or I've never considered that before, don't automatically reject it. Perhaps God wants to change your mind about something. But when you do hear something new, take that new information and go right to the Bible with it and look to see if it lines up. And if it does, change your mind. But if it doesn't, change your leader. <laughs> because if you're listening regularly to things that are being taught that are contradicting what the Bible says about the gospel, you will eventually get off track by compromising what it says. So the Bible warns us. Be careful that you don't let some anonymous experts distract you from the truth of the gospel. And be careful that you don't let prominent Christian speakers or leaders or teachers distract you from the truth of the gospel. And then there's one more. 
But if we, he says in verse 8, are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you've heard. Now you're thinking, well, that one we got figured out because there has never been an angel come by here and preach. Uh, let's hope. I mean, look at him over here. I mean, he's a great guy, and I already said how much I admire and respect your pastor, but he's no angel. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you barely know me, but you already know enough about me to know I'm no angel either, right? You may be saying, no, 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 I am a lot nicer guy than you know. <laughs> so what is the warning here? Well, listen, this may be more serious than you think. See, in our culture today, the people who come to us don't claim to be angels, but believe it or not, there are at least two prominent movements which are very, very prominent in our world, which are based on angelic revelation. The most troublesome religious movement in our world today is Islam. Read how it began with a revelation from an angel announcing who the true prophet was. It's not hard to find. Not complicated reading. Wikipedia will do it for you. Same thing on a movement that purports to be in some ways Christian, but really has a false gospel, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Where did that originate? By an angelic messenger saying, here's a new book. A new book that has truth in it that ought to be used alongside the Bible. Now, I'm not speaking in a condemnatory way of these religions or these movements. I'm speaking in a truthful way, though, where they originated. They originated by angelic or so-called angelic revelation, which caused their founders to move forward founding and producing new movements which contradict the gospel. So don't be so sure that you're not susceptible to being, to being led off track by an angel from heaven just because the angel doesn't appear to you. If it appeared 700 or 1,500 years ago, it's still, or excuse me, 200 or 1,500 years ago, it's still angelic revelation that's diverting us from the true gospel. You tracking with me now? So here's what the Bible says so far. The gospel has been clearly communicated. Jesus came and died and gave himself as a willing voluntary sacrifice for our sins to give us life in this present evil age that delivers us from the impact of what we're having to live in every day. He's done that because it's always his plan for all the ages and this all resounds to God's glory forever and we all said amen. And then he warns us. In spite of how good the gospel is, you've got to be on guard that you don't drift away from it by one means or another. And then at the end of the passage, we get to the heart of why this is so difficult. First of all, there's a great warning about a division in our relationship with God that comes when we turn away from the gospel. Verse 9 is very strong. He said, I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, a curse be on him. That phrase, a curse be on him, is the translation of one word, anathema, which is one of the strongest curse words in the New Testament. It borders right up on a profanity type word in our world today where the Bible is declaring a curse beyond a person who tampers with the gospel. So there's tension between us and God that results. This curse rests on us when we tamper with the gospel. We get that part. Then we get to the last verse. And my friends, this is why 
holding to the gospel and rejecting errors about it is so difficult for most of us. Notice what it says. For am I not trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, the gospel is communicated and it's easily compromised, but then last of all, when you hold to it, it often creates division or tension in the relationships. Paul says, the reason this is so hard, what I'm preaching about today, the reason this is so hard is because when you get down to the bottom line, you everyone have to make a decision about the gospel. And that is, will you serve God and his gospel? Or will you serve people and say whatever you have to say just to keep peace? You see, it's relational tension that makes holding to the gospel so difficult. It's really easy in a service like this. I mean, I'm up here preaching. We're in a place that's built to house preaching like this. You're here because you, you want to be here. You Most of you, if not almost all of you, uh, basically affirm what I believe, and you did even before you got here this morning. So it's kind of really easy here to do what we're doing right now. It's pretty easy. But I'm not talking about holding to the gospel here. And I'm not talking about resisting temptation to compromise it here. See, Paul says, here's a place where it's really hard. It's with your 14-year-old granddaughter. It's you saying to her, could I talk with you about Jesus and what he means? No, I don't want to hear about that. Why are you forcing your religion on me? I don't want to believe that. I don't know why you always bring it up. I don't know why it means so much to you. I don't know why you have to talk to me about that. Hmm. It's you bringing up the gospel to a co-worker. They work in the cube next to you or they drive a truck with you all day long and at lunchtime you say, hey, listen, you know, something really important to me happened a few years ago. Can I tell you about it? Sure. Well, a few years ago, I, I committed my life to Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you'd be open to it. No, I don't want to talk about that. Don't bring that up at work. You don't need to be bringing that into this, into, into this office or bringing this into our truck. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't know why you have to bring that up. I'm talking about your ex-wife. There's already enough tension there. But you came to faith in Jesus a few years ago. You'd really like for her to know Jesus too. You wonder, how do I bring up the gospel in that kind of relationship where there's already You see, when it's your, your sister, your brother, your grandchild, your ex-wife, your cousin, your dad. When it's your high school best friend, the person you went to college with, the man or the woman that you work with every day, you're talking about it. You cross the street neighbor. When you have these kind of tension, when you have these kind of relationships, and you introduce the gospel into those conversations, every one of you knows what I mean when I say tension often results. You know what I mean. 
Sometimes the person reacts negatively, as I illustrated this morning. Sometimes they don't react that negatively, but you just don't know really what to say. And you, you feel like you're stumbling over your words and you're just not quite sure what to say. And you feel embarrassed by the situation because you just didn't know how to really have a conversation about the gospel. Maybe it's like Pastor Mike said, you had 2,200 plus people here last Sunday. And now, if I know him, he's saying, let's go meet them. Let's go talk to them. Let's go give them information about our church. Let's go ask them about their relationship with God. Let's go build a relationship. Let's do all we can to help them come to that relationship with God. And you're thinking, that's all great, but I hope he doesn't ask me to do that because my heart beats a little faster when I think about actually talking to someone about the gospel. Right? You see, the real challenge for most of us, in holding to the truth of the gospel, it's not that we don't understand it. We do. We get the first part of the sermon. It's not that we don't want to resist error. We do. We understand I need to be on guard. That's not what's the most difficult for the most of us. What's the most difficult is that last verse. It's deciding, well, I serve God and his gospel and speak up the truth of it in the lives of people that are around me that I care about and I'm responsible for. A life least people and say whatever has to be said to keep the peace rather than really speak the gospel. Let's start with this.